Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we guide clinicians on ways to apply a person-centered approach to their clinical practice. We have our online self-paced and live course dates all up on our website, so check it out at tkex.org. Today, I'm very excited to chat with physiotherapist and researcher Joshua Pate to discuss some of the ways we can best help children with pain towards helpful and useful pain science concepts, along with some of the nuances with these sometimes challenging clinical interactions. And if you're a parent yourself, stay tuned in as we'll be discussing some potential ways to introduce pain science to perhaps your own kids. So Josh, thank you very much for making the time for us, mate. Hi, Daniel. Yeah, nice to meet and I'm looking forward to chatting about this. Mate, the infamous question, famous, infamous, depending on which lens you're looking at through, what's your story? Well, yeah, so I, as you said, I'm a, a physiotherapist as uh, my background, and then I uh, slowly journeyed into doing more and more research work. I think I was always interested and curious. And, it, and to me, when I was at uni, it seemed like the medical fields research was like a couple of decades ahead of everything else. Um, anyway, so I just kind of had that in the background. I, I worked in pediatrics primarily, like for allocation year in the hospital systems, and and then found myself in a in a working part time in a pain clinic and doing a bit of research, a master's of research, and then that led to a PhD and um, and, and kind of joining these different dots of how do kids think about pain, and and it's like I really saw the benefit of doing good like education about the science of pain that seemed to be useful rather than having magic hands. Um, it seems has left less side effects, although we can chat more about that. Um, but I, I was really fascinated by that. And it's like, what's the smallest amount of education that you could provide in a clinical interaction that still has like a, a sufficient effect? Like, does someone need to become a neuroscientist? No, some people don't even need any education. And so where do we start? And so my PhD was kind of targeting, working out how to target that education. We built a, a questionnaire, um, the concept of pain inventory. And then now that's led to like children's books and a whole bunch of other projects. And so now I'm more involved in like schools and media and talking about the in the public sphere, how do we change like kind of cause that what they call a conceptual revolution like if you think when Galileo or Einstein like these big names change the way that everyone thinks um, it takes a long time um, but there are strategies that can be done like we saw that with slip slop slap in the 1980s and like we've seen that several times with seatbelts and tobacco um, and it's kind of like what what could we do here in terms of the complexity of pain and I'd like to think that that also informs every little conversation you have in a clinical interaction too. Um, but yeah, I think that's me and in, in my work in a nutshell. <laughs> it's amazing. It's um, the the evolution from clinician to researcher and now paradigm shifter and trying to change a shift, maybe that some of the culture around pain and how we can best help uh, maybe deliver not only the public health campaigns and messages, but also what we can do uh, with interactions and if, given a loss, a lot of guides so far with, with your research. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, I was going to just say, I, so in my work working, so I work at the university of technology in Sydney and we, um, I teach in the masters of physiotherapy program. We teach a pain science subject and I just constantly every week after class, I'm like, I wish I learned this when I was at university. Like the, the research has just changed practice so much in the last decade or so. Um, and I just think it's really exciting time to try and uh, stay updated and, and work out ways to be up to date. So I love what you guys are doing. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's a constant challenge. I think that's uh, important to acknowledge that the research is yeah. constantly shifting and changing and kudos to people like yourself um, on, on the, the front lines, we'll say with, with um, education for new grads and students coming through. I think I would have loved a bit of pain science back in 2014, ages ago now, showing my age. When I graduated, so really appreciate that. Um, for for the clinicians who aren't so aware of some of the research, what were some of um, the some of the findings that you've had? If we were to you know summarize all the hard work that you've done in the past few years, um, what what have been some of the the takeaways that we can we can get from from some of your research with children with pain? Yeah, one of the I, the first kind of surprising thing we encountered was pretty early in my PhD, we did a qualitative study and we got a bunch of kids to come in and we used a drawing task 
we thought it was like an icebreaker activity. And we just said, oh, draw whatever you think of when you hear the word pain. And the more I speak with clinicians and, and teaching and all this stuff, I realize how that question, like it was carefully designed, but we thought it was mostly to just help the kids to speak a bit more. Um, but what it does is it it helped like, so all the kids with chronic pain in this study drew emotional things as well as injuries. Whereas we had a cohort of healthy kids as well, and they only drew injuries. And there was just this really interesting moment of going, oh, so once someone has experienced that, that part of pain that is the suffering part, then their concept of pain is much more associated with like hearts and tears and and like all these horrible things that you're just like, oh, that's devastating that an eight-year-old thinks about pain in that way. Whereas for me, when I was growing up, I didn't have, like I would have just drawn a grazed knee or something like that. Um, and, and I think that to me has been such a guide because if you realize that every single person around you has a different way that they define pain and understand pain, they're going to approach pain differently. When they feel a little niggle, um, that what what we might have clinically called like catastrophizing or something, like if you just take one layer underneath that, you can straight away start identifying little targets for what uh, the patient might want to learn. And, and to me, that's really exciting because it gives the person in who's challenged by pain some agency in the in the interaction, right? So if they call their pain lightning, use that word. Like let them let them use their words rather than you trying to dictate, oh, let me tell you everything I know and verbal diarrhea all over them. Um, I think it's, yeah, I, to me, that was one of the very first things that was like, oh, this is a big deal because some people don't require much education and, and they can get back to full function and back to full school participation or whatever it is. Um, and that was just a really cool moment, I think. Um, and then I, maybe another in, in the pediatric space, another thing that's been exciting with my research, we, we did a study just recently actually with um, the, the kids going through Stanford uh, Pediatric Pain Clinic in the US and we compared after a three-hour initial assessment the, the concept of pain of the parents who attended the appointment and the child who attended the appointment. And you would think after three hours of talking about pain with your mum or dad, um, you'd probably be pretty close to on the same page. And, and with the questionnaire, um, the total scores kind of look similar, but when you broke it down, there's there's particular items and and I think five or six of the participants in this study had opposite scores. So one, like the parent might've said that, um, that, I don't know, like a whole bunch of things, like maybe feeling sad can make your pain worse. And their scores are just one strongly disagrees, one strongly agrees. And and you can imagine, right, if, if there's those discrepancies at home, this is something that I think we can really learn from is the influence that parents and teachers and coaches have on kids is actually a really, like we call it family-centered care in pediatrics. Like kids spent 40% of their time with their primary school teacher. We need to obviously make sure everyone's on the same page. But when they when it gets to adults, we we don't often invite the, the influential people into the appointment necessarily. Maybe they'll bring their spouse or their son or their daughter or their parent um, but not all the time. And and so even in running pain programs in the hospital system, we started inviting people, hey, bring your, bring your daughter along to the group and we'll exercise all together. And, and some of that stuff, I think it's not a direct application from my research, but it's certainly going, we're taking something really useful that we've identified in another field like pediatrics and going, oh, how could we use that with everyone? And how could everyone else benefit uh, from that. I don't know. Have I answered? That's a couple of examples there. Um, I could talk all day about my research. I think. <laughs> Love it. I, I can feel the the passion as well that you have. It's, it's, it's infectious. The, um, the so, awesome. super curious, like the, the, what I, what I took from that, the emotional aspect of dealing with pain and managing pain. I think, I don't know if like my mind is saying, we sometimes forget that kids have emotions and they need to also learn how to um, like, acknowledge and appreciate and, and, and clinicians need to also address some of the emotional aspects of, of pain uh, on top of the yeah. obvious uh, nociception sensations and dealing with the injury and the MSK diagnoses and doing necessary care. There is also that human that doesn't know what to do with this pain and they're looking to their, imagining their role models and their, this is where the second point of their teachers and the influence of their parents and how that can shape um, their response, the meaning that they take. Yeah from their entire experience. 
Totally. I like I one of my PhD students, we're looking at this exact thing of upskilling community clinicians who occasionally see pediatric patients and have that moment of going, oh no, what the heck do I do if the parent's angry or if if the parent thinks this or like have those questions that we commonly see? Like, what does it require? Because I think there's an element of being okay with discomfort and an, and a slightly uncomfortable scenario, but you don't like, we're not saying to become a psychologist or anything like there's just like psychologically informed therapy, I think is becoming more and more common. Um, but it's tricky, right? If someone has graduated and they've learned how to push on the saw bit or whatever their treatment skills are, um, and it's very structurally biomedically driven, and then they get into the clinical world and the patient's talking about all this emotional the, the all the challenges associated with pain, it can be tempting to just be like, all right, lay down, put your head in the hole on the plinth, like, and not want to address that. But I, I think the evidence is overwhelmingly moving towards, uh, like, I don't love the word holistic because it, I don't know, it kind of induces people to want to go and take vitamins, but, but like a whole person. Uh, approach to to caring about someone and and that doesn't mean just quickly give them three sets of 10 of some exercise or just quickly tell them that everything they learned was wrong or something like I think there's a real nuance to how to approach some of this stuff and and to me that's what makes clinical work really rewarding and exciting it's not it's never cookie cutter right like it's always um, something different which is cool which is uh, also imagining challenging in the research space to trying to find a standardized or general uh, yeah. way to communicate the you know pain science concepts and um, touching on your second point about how the parents um, can take away something different from the the kids even though it's the same information and that's where we need some ways to individualize um, and can maybe contextualize some of the the nuances of the information with the the knowledge that people can take home different messages, maybe even opposite messages or unintended messages to, to what uh, we go through in the limited time that we have in, in clinic. Yeah, totally agree. I, I What comes to mind there is um, some of Haley Leake's work where they went and talked to recovered patients and said, hey, what did you learn that was really helpful? And this is in adults, but um, it was really interesting. So I've been working on these children's books that have just been published recently. And over that's been five or six year process. And in that time, Haley's been doing this work in parallel. And I didn't know exactly what the findings were going to be. I was pretty sure, like based on other things and clinical interactions, that there would be some key messages. Um, but the the results, like the findings of what recovered patients say helped, like in terms of what they learned. So for instance, um, when it comes to pain, everything matters is one of the adult messages. And in the kids' books, the second Zoe and Zach's Pain Hacks book two is the learning message is many things can turn the volume of my pain up or down. And I, I don't know if you can see that nuance there. Maybe if someone's listening, they're like, isn't that the same thing? Um, well, yeah, maybe for an adult, that's the same thing. But if you say to an eight to 12-year-old, which has been where my research has sat, they're not able to think abstractly. And so when you say something like everything matters, it's like, what does that mean? Like, like, is that like TV or what? And whereas if you say for a kid, many things can turn the volume up and down, they'll say, oh, what do you mean? And then you're like, okay, so if you bend over, when you're saying your back hurts, when you bend forward, what are some of the things that could contribute? And have you bent over in the past? And they'll, then they'll start picking up some of the things like in Mel Knoll's work of memories and and then there's expectations and like you can go through a big list of 50 biopsychosocial variables at that point. And, and so what we're finding is the targeted education that can come from, so like if there's a particular gap or misconception in the, the questionnaire, um, you can then go, oh, let's start with that particular part rather than I'm going to tell you two hours of pain science and explain peripheral sensitization um, to an eight-year-old or something. Like that just seems unnecessary but maybe for some people it's really useful and empowering. And, and I think that's where for me, the benefit, like the clinical benefit of becoming a researcher is that I think much more long-term and not one, I, I do individualize, but you think about people as lots, there are lots of other humans who may be similar. And that's where that challenge that you're talking about is it's how do you, can we standardize this to some degree, but like, maybe with AI or some sort of algorithm 
could we then allow people to take their own ad- adventure and, and as they learn and discover things? Um, and that to me is kind of where I want to head is going, where, where can we enable that um, targeted journey? So rather than being like, here, good luck with this. Like we, we intentionally made the books five separate actual books in a series rather than five chapters where people feel like, oh, I can't start at chapter two. Um, whereas if it's five different books, you can start wherever you like. And and it allows the clinician to go, hey, I noticed that you you mentioned that you've got lots of damage in your body and the scan said this. And there's this book about that. It's a silly little cartoon book. Um, I've increasingly getting messages from adult clinicians who are saying, hey, this is a really nice, like it lowers the access point to the education by saying there's a silly rhyming kids book about it. Um, what do you think of this? Take this home. Uh, and And then- it it create it gives the patient more power in the interaction, and I think that's really helpful. Otherwise, you're using all this jargon as the clinician, and they're not understanding, and then they feel bad, and all those people pleasing tendencies are coming out, and they pretend to know or whatever it is. Um, so I'm hoping to address some of that awkwardness that kind of goes under the radar, and sometimes leads to in the patient notes what we see is oh the patient was not compliant with their exercises or something like that. And it's like, I, yeah, I think that we can reduce some of that if we truly understand our patients. Mm. And it's um, a few concepts that at once I'm hearing the one thing at a time and shout out to the work that you're doing with your podcast of, of one thing. Um, so making it digestible and, and uh, the kind of minimum effective dose of education required to make yeah. the big changes. Um, and then looking at it from an individualized perspective that where we can um, give that person, whether that's a, a child or an adult, a sense of agency and control over their education journey. And, and yeah. again, finding that starting point that's most clinically useful and, and relevant and then guiding them from there. So there, there's more of that kind of collaborative process and they're in charge of where they go and how they take it. And then we tailor it according to how they're responding as opposed to chucking some analogy at a kid and they don't understand what the fuck a cup is and why that has anything to do with their pain. Um, it's, it's more individualized. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for all the professionals listening who do a lot of movement and exercise based treatments, things like um, Peter O'Sullivan, JP Canero's work on like uh, behavioral experiments and um, Dan Ariely's stuff on behavioral economics. Like that's to me, I'm so interested in how can we nudge people's behavior to actually change um, anyway, that's just my personal hunch. I thought I'd just plant some seeds if someone's curious and wants to read more stuff. Um, I think that's going to influence our professions, like the allied health professions, a lot more um, in the coming years because it's like, what, uh, yeah, what can we actually do to cause behavior change? And for me, I used to think like the first time I didn't have my magic hands and I saw someone benefit long term from education, I gave quite a lot of education. And then it was like, oh, do they need to know all of that? Like maybe maybe there's other variables here. Um, and, and I just, yeah, I'd love to hear if people are going on that journey. It's a really interesting moment to to work out, like trying to tease out without blinding and without sham treatments and all of that stuff. How do you tease out what's actually helping someone? Um, yeah, it's a great thought to have, I think. <laughs> it's um, super fascinating and, and looking at it um, with kind of the pain science concepts and principles we, we touched on um, how we may need to tailor some of the abstract concepts and analogies. Um, and uh, this is a very close-ended simplified question we can branch off it, but is the pain science education for kids merely a, a simplified form of what we would offer to adults? So what are some of the, the differences as well as similarities when it comes to yeah. uh, helping communicate, translate some of the pain science principles for, for children? Yeah, great. I, I think it's a really good question. And my answer would be to, to think, uh, to look into developmentally sensitive and cognitive development stuff. If you can understand some of the background to what a child's brain goes through, oh, sorry, their cognitive development and their affective development as they age, there's, there's different frameworks of approaching this, but um, yeah, the reason my research focused on eight to 12 year olds is we wanted them old enough to fill out a questionnaire, which is eight ish. <laughs> and then we wanted them not to be able to think abstractly. And, and so the key message out of, um, say like in Haley's work that I mentioned earlier, one of the items that isn't addressed with a whole book is that all pain is real. 
Um, and that's because in the interviews with eight to 12 year olds, that idea of real is just so misunderstood and it's not worth like it, it we have it in that we have a free online platform at the end of each book you can go and scan a qr code it takes you to all these other learning resources and there we definitely embed this idea that all pain is real um but i i think going head on for someone who's not able to think abstractly and keep on talking about their pain is real it's probably it's like saying oh don't think about the lion in the room or something like they're going to start thinking about a lion. Like if you start saying, Oh, your pain's real, they're going to start thinking about, wait, did they think my pain wasn't real or what does that even mean? What's real mean? And, um, and so I think there's an element of what we, what we can see in younger kids is we want to make sure we're working within their frameworks of thinking rather than imposing our trying to impose our frameworks. And sometimes we do need to add and, and change that. But, um, it's it's less sometimes it's less about conceptual change, which is what we often see with misconceptions in adults, and it's it can be more about conceptual development. It's like okay, so why would someone feel pain? Or if if someone couldn't feel pain, what would it look like for them? What do you think would happen to them? Um, and they start teasing out when pain is a helpful thing, and, and or oh, when my mum goes to the gym, it, she likes when it feels when it hurts the next day, or when it, like with DOMS or something. Um, and, and they have these ideas, right? And and I think that's something that it is different. Like it's categorically different. Like children are not just little adults. Um, but in saying that, some of the key messages that are likely to help are probably similar. Like if someone, um, if you explain that pain and damage have a pretty tenuous link, not very strong link. Um, that can be really empowering for a lot of people and it can be quite surprising. Um, and, and I don't think that matters what age you are, um, but the way that you approach it, I think can be different. And so it's a challenge when you are sitting in the room and you've got two parents who think differently and you've got the child there, um, you're sitting on the floor with them or whatever it is. And, and then they're going and they're an elite, say they're going to aim for the Olympics in a couple of years or something like there's a lot of stress. The coach is obviously they keep talking about this coach who's putting a lot of pressure and then the teacher's worried that they're missing class because of sport, but now they're missing out on sport because of their pain and they're in all these appointments. And you see this complexity, like it just comes really, really quick. It starts off with you read the referral going, oh, they've just got some patellofemoral pain or something. Um, and then it turns into like, this is really quite complex. And if we just keep uh, trying to put band-aids on it, this could have like negative effects in the long term. Like we know, particularly with athletes, some of the work we're doing, a lot of their identity can be wrapped up in like their action. And this can happen in any job, but I think particularly with athletes, it's a big deal because they get to their mid thirties and and a lot of them have to retire for whatever reason or become a commentator. <laughs> um, and, and it's like, oh, who am I now? And and if if pain is wrapped up in that, then they can shift from, I was an athlete and now I'm a, a pain patient or something really stigmatizing like that. And and I think this is what interests me most is with the young kids, if we can get that education right, it could have preventative effects. Like for me, knowing that there are so many influences on every pain experience, not just chronic pain, that has like totally transformed whenever I feel pain going for a run or something like that. I like my self-efficacy is so much higher because of the education. And I just, I really want that for other people. And, and I, yeah, I dream of that. Like, imagine if I knew that when I was 10 or something, like I, there were one or two kids in every one of my classes who had chronic pain and they were the, probably the ones missing out on class or like they missed 22% of school is the statistic. And that's like one year of high school. Like it's a lot of time. Um, and, and you just kind of think of them as, oh, they're the quiet kid or they're the ones who, because pain's pretty invisible most of the time. Um, yeah, it's just a real challenge. Like, I think there's benefits even for the people around. Like, so when you're seeing these families, get the siblings there, whoever has the say in that um, household, I think you want to get them in the in the room. <laughs> it's Sorry, so I went on a bit of a tangent there. And <laughs> Relevant rant, honestly, the um, uh, reflecting on, I'm sure some of the listeners have their own uh, experiences with pain that they, they can uh, reflect on at the moment. And even uh, speaking for myself, chronic knee pain um, in the soccer playing days, kind of uh, influencing the, the training and who I was, the identity of being a soccer player. And then uh, what I would have wanted back when I was, I think 12 is when it started. 
um, it would have been amazing to see. And, and so there's so much potential we can even draw on our own experiences there of the repercussions of of um pain science education or education in general if, if we had that guidance maybe more of that conceptual development as you mentioned and and more of that uh agency and uh, uh giving people some some skills and tool sets and and knowledge that can then empower them to make more informed decisions and and see how much uh they actually have how, how much influence they can have on on their pain that's so often seen as just a, a pathanatomical injury and it, you know their body is broken and they're just not not good enough and then there's yeah. stigma on top of that as well yeah exactly i yeah i i'm so fascinated by that idea of when someone sees themselves as as broken or fragile and then they go and get a scan and get told that there's like it's they might be an incidental finding but it induces fear like oh there's this degeneration or there's this meniscal thing or whatever and it's like if you look at the prevalence of that that finding of an MRI scan in an asymptomatic population who doesn't have the condition, it's it's often very high. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners here would have heard of that stuff. But I just find it really fascinating that so many people, like they they hear, it's like the equivalent of hearing, oh, you've got some gray hair on the inside. And they're like, I'm dying. Like because the word is degeneration, it's, it's like, oh, maybe I've got... MS or something else. Um, and and I think, yeah, that's where it's, we need to, as health professionals, I think we need to be really, really careful of that power dynamic. And and I, I guess it's becoming self-aware of how big that power dynamic is. Like even in my physio students, a lot of them think, oh, this patients won't even trust me or something like that. But there is certainly still a huge amount of power Um and if you're using language that the other person doesn't understand in a way that is trying to kind of be bossy, like that's manipulating, right? And and so I think we want to be really, really transparent in terms of that shared decision-making you were talking about. I think we want to say, hey, the reason that I want to get to know more about your dog is that you were saying walking is really important. Like, And so if we can attach some emotional connection to each of those times you go walking, it's going to be more li- like the evidence shows that you're going to be more likely to do this task and it's going to be more likely to help you with your pain. Um, and so show me your dog photos or whatever. like it, it, it becomes a broader conversation. You build better alliance. Like, I don't know, that's a silly example, but I think if you add those things up and you do 50 or of those things in an appointment and in the waiting room and, and the education that's on the wall and the emails that are sent out and all of those, like every little step has so many opportunities that I don't think we acknowledge the power in them. Um, even just like text message reminders, like we know they're powerful, but like, could we be tweaking them slightly? And I don't know, there's lots of stuff there that I can't wait to do in research. So if people are listening and, and want to do a PhD, nah, <laughs> let me know. Now, um, I yeah, I think there's so many questions we have now that we understand because pain is so complicated. It's opening up avenues of going, wait, is it like even just this word complicated versus complex, I had someone chatting me. It's like, no, it truly is complicated for some kids. Like if 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 one parent's saying one thing and another one is saying something, the definition of complicated is literally that. It's it's not just that it's complex, it's truly confusing. And um and and for someone to say, no, it's not confusing, it's it's black and white, it's like, oh, that's that's also missing the point. And and so I think we we really need to tailor every conversation for now and until we have better data um to know like i don't know say for you when you were 12 what would have the the ideal interaction looked like and and we can brainstorm that and maybe if people are listening to this as a pd thing sit with your team and work out what would daniel's ideal treatment plan be when he showed up he loves soccer he's got this anterior knee pain whatever it is um, yeah, how does that interaction, like how do you divide up your 45 minutes or your hour or whatever the time is? How do you spend that most wisely? And, and a lot of the time it's shutting up, which is hard. Um, and, and so then if you've got less words, how do we choose those really wisely to target the particular outcomes? Mm. Um, yeah, these are some of the things, I don't know, I'm kind of just brainstorming here because I think it's a real... It, it can often be helpful to not have, I don't know, when I hear researchers speak, sometimes it comes across like, oh, they just know heaps of stuff. And like for me, the more I research, the, it feels like I know even less <laughs> um, and I become less certain about things. And and that 
hopefully that's reassuring for people to hear is when you read a research paper, sometimes it makes you less certain about uh, what, what the outcome is going to be. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, it perhaps provides a bit of a, a filter for if we do come across some information that appears too certain, we can perhaps have hold a level or level of uh, I was going to say suspicion or, or questioning because uh, there is so many other factors involved in a complex human experience. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of uh, some of the, the ways that pain science education uh, could go wrong. I think it's helpful to know kind of what not to do or what research suggests isn't helpful. Mm. Um, and I think we've touched on some of the, the complex interactions where there might be a discrepancy between what a clinician tells a, a, a client, a patient, and then what their coach in their soccer training sessions that they have four times more of, or they spend, you know, much yeah. more time with them and they maybe even trust and like them a bit more, who knows? Um, and also let alone the time they have at home, um, how else they get their information from teachers, from maybe even now social media. So there might be that, that discrepancy, that the incoherence between what is well-intentioned uh, pain science education in a consult and also what they see elsewhere. And mm. the question is what, what could go wrong? And this isn't necessarily our fault per se, but it's just a consideration to have to know like what, what not to do or what, what to consider. Yeah. Any, any yeah, yeah. advice tips on, on navigating some of these, these ideas? Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a long time, but I feel like I don't have a lot of progress. Uh, one study, we, it, this thought led us to want to have a control group with education and um, so when we're developing the kids' books, for the first book, it's uh, pain is not in proportion to damage. And we use that anecdotal story about the nail going through the boot and it doesn't actually touch his toes, but his pain is real and all of that stuff. And the sham book is also colorful and also rhyming and also fun, but it just teaches uh, how to rate pain out of 10, like potentially not clinically useful in terms of reducing fear and, and avoidance and stuff. Um and, and so the reason that we wanted to have a sham and have a control was because of the potential that it could cause harm. Like there's studies where there's a whole range of different studies. There's one that comes to mind in an indigenous setting where um, a biomedical system was imposed upon this culture and then back pain related disability increased. And, and it's like, okay, if everyone thought that pain never meant damage, like say they misinterpreted it, um, then they might keep their hand on the hot plate. Like at a young enough age, that could cause the protective system to not even be protective. Or I don't know, like as in that's theoretically possible. We have never seen that, but I just have that thought in the back of my mind sometimes. And I'm like, we need to make sure that we test this and make sure that it's it's rolled out in a way that um, is safe and we're not going to worsen the situation. And And to be honest, like I think the fact, say with the children's books I mentioned, they're a conversation starter. Like it's not like people are going to immediately take it at face value. And an eight-year-old has pretty good uh, wits about them to to test things and they love that curiosity and stuff. So it's a really nice time. So I, that that risk of harm, I think is quite small. Um, but certainly like if you think about the language we use, like my, I actually not that long ago, it was a couple of years ago, I was out running back where I grew up in that area and I was running on the pavement with joggers on um, and my soccer manager, for, and I was similar to you, really into soccer as a teenager, He, he I, I hadn't seen him in 10 years or something, yells out and he's like, Josh, be really careful. You might get shin splints. <laughs> and, and like he didn't know I was a physio or a researcher or any of that. And um, I was just like, it's okay. <laughs> and kept running. But it was just a funny like... Like he had so much influence over my formative years in terms of thinking about my own biology and stuff, because it's like, oh, you've got to stretch this out. You've got to push this. You've got to do that. And, and like the fear and the, like, so is that a harm, right? Like what, what counts as a harm? Like he was trying to stop me from participating. And if I think about the ICF model of like, there's, yes, there's body function and structures that are impaired, but the activity limitations is a big deal. And to me, the biggest thing we can help with as health professionals with, with people challenged by pain is that participation restrictions box. Um, and if I miss out on going for a run because I'm worried that I'll get shin splints, um, when that is not 
a reasonable expectation. Like biologically, I was very unlikely to get it. I was running frequently. I wasn't changing my training load. Like there was no reason that doing uh, running on concrete is a dangerous thing. And, and, but the message I was getting was the opposite to that. And so I suppose this is kind of like anti-pain science education has harms, but I we need to look at ourselves in that same lens. It's like, okay, is there anything that, that I'm saying in my clinical interactions that could be causing more, whatever it is, disability, fear, more pain. Um, like, so a really clear classic example that I think of is when someone does a really good physical exam, they're probably stretching, giving, like say you're doing straight leg raise or you're doing different movements that are, could be provocative. What do you say about that? Like, do you say, hey, this is going to hurt tomorrow, but that's safe? Or do you say nothing? <laughs> or do you say, oh, this will be fine? Um, like kind of like the when you're getting your vaccines, it's like, oh, it's a big prick or it's a big, it's going to really hurt or just hold your breath. Or <laughs> Like there's, there's messaging out there and in Canada does a really good job at this in terms of vaccine pain. But like, what's the messages that a health professional doing a physical exam should say to someone challenged by chronic pain, like when they do the exam, should they tell them and give them an expectation? This is going to hurt a lot, but you're safe. Or should they say it might, might or might not hurt? Like, and where's that line? We don't have an answer to this question yet, but I think that's, that taps into your question there. I think of going, how could our words cause harm? Um, And maybe if we phrase it as, Hey, you're sore, but safe. Um, and give me a call if you are worried about it. Like maybe that's the middle ground. That's a good starting point, but we don't really truly know yet. Um, and so I'm becoming increasingly interested in this idea of how could we create a control group for that kind of test, right? To test if the wording about post-assessment pain <laughs> uh, could change. And because and I think it sometimes starts there, right? Like you see in the pain clinic, we see people who have gone, oh, I've seen everyone. I've had 30 different health professionals test me out and examine me and no one can help me. And it's like, I wonder if they've seen one person and then they've been sore the next day and then they've gone, nah, that's not for me. I'll go to the next health professional. Nah, that's not for me. Um, and Or maybe they truly did see everyone. And, and it's like all those nuances, I think, are really, really challenging. Um, but yeah, your question about potential harms is a really good thing to keep in the front of your mind because um, we, we should be putting exercise and education under the same scrutiny that we are now putting surgery and opioids um, where if we're saying they need chams and control groups, we need to be doing the same thing. Um, so this, I, I guess, a, let's think about a clinical application here. Um, maybe it's that in your clinic, the post-discharge, say at three or six month follow-up, you get them all to come back in, but it could be a blinded assessor and you don't, the person doing the physical exam at that assessment doesn't know anything about the patient or something like that. And then that way you're getting an unbiased reading of what's actually happened. And it's not just you like making sure that their people pleasing tendencies are, are saying that they improved or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I don't know. There's so many possible applications here and I, I, it's really exciting. I think we're at a point where we have, we know enough that we can really help people, um, but we don't know enough to know the nuance of that for every single person just yet. And so it's going to keep being a, a learning journey over and over and over. 10 to 20 times a day or whatever, however long your working days are clinically, um, maybe five is probably ideal. <laughs> um, it can be really draining, right, to, to invest in someone's story. Yeah, mm, It's um, super interesting, the, um, uh, I guess, allowing that same uh, criticism and questioning of, of our own uh, processes and, and what we do and what we say and even some of the coherence between our maybe recommendations. I mean, I can look at uh, previous experiences of uh, when I was perhaps saying a certain message that you can be sore but safe and pain doesn't necessarily mean that there is damage but then the recommendations kind of counter that a little bit with the specific uh, prescription yeah. of activities and then I was kind of dictating uh, and imposing my own kind of rules without understanding hey on, on, you, I just said that they can be sore but safe so how can we kind of mesh the two and the, the whole context of our interaction even consider yeah. the interaction itself as the intervention and see um, and really value what they take, what they take away from that, that consult. Um, so again, applying that same criticism, critical thinking um, to our own interventions and how we do it, not only just what we say. Yeah, totally agree, Daniel. I think it's great. Yeah.
the um the concept of of the role of parents we've we've touched on briefly but um i'm also thinking now uh i've yet to see a a child especially say under the age of even 16 um come into a session a consult with me without their parents so the parents are kind of always involved in some form in some capacity um and oftentimes they're in the clinic room during assessments during um uh, movements dur- during the the whole consultation process. So uh, maybe some advice for for clinicians on how to to navigate uh, this, how to maybe uh, appreciate and involve that we touched on involving the parents in the yeah. um, the education, the process, the interactions. Um, but yeah, any any advice for for navigating and, and appreciating the role of parents with the child's understanding of pain? Yeah, we wrote a paper about this uh, last year. There's some really great experts. Rhiannon and Jocelyn was on this paper. It was about like children not being little adults and how do you do a musculoskeletal assessment and um, that kind of stuff. And and one of the privileges in a pain clinic is if doing a multidisciplinary assessment, there's this point where you can go, all right, the the physio or the EP, whoever's going to do the physical exam will kind of take the kid out into the hallway or and and do some functional testing or something like that. And at that moment, the psychologist can then chat with the parent. And and there's this brief moment, even for a young kid, where you can say, is there anything else you wanted to add and and give them permission to share? And and to the parent, is there anything else you wanted to add? And and often by the end of that big, long appointment, the things that are muttered in those little, like, oh, no, there's nothing. I've told you everything. Or actually, I really didn't know if I was allowed to say blah, 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 whatever it is. Those things can be really eye-opening. And I mean, in a pain clinic, you're kind of seeing that 1% of people who are like the, often you are, the people who are really, really uh, challenged and the situation's very complex. But in a, um, in a like, a, I guess on a smaller scale, if you have like 20 minute appointments or something in an outpatient setting, um, it, it can be very difficult to know, like, how do I navigate? Should the parent be in the room or not? And I think you're doing the right thing. Like a parent should be present if they're a child, right? Like, and, and definitely under 16, I think that's a good idea. Um, but there might be moments where they're on their phone or something like that. And it's like, what? Yeah, observing some of the interactions that happen, like you'll have kids who are constantly looking to their parent and maybe they're just nervous and they don't like want, talking to health professionals or strangers or whatever it is. But sometimes it's like, oh, I don't want mom to know this, but uh, like, I'm actually not, playing sport at school like I just sit out all the time or or whatever and there's these moments where it, it really changes the whole the treatment that you provide should be very different like it, it could be one little sentence um and yeah so I think maybe a tip is to to get to know a, a really good clinical psychologist that you can be referring to and discussing um complexities with uh, because they're the experts at say like screening for psychological safety and and some of these things that we pick up and often it's at that primary care level that that very first contact person who could have noticed something and and could have nipped it in the bud like um and yeah just you see this spiral of fear and avoidance and leading to passive treatments and disability and all of those things happening a lot like i i think i'm biased and i see that more than the average clinician but um yeah, that, that kind of weight of going, oh, like when do we intervene and when should we say something or not say something? I think just having those thoughts is a good starting point. Um, and then knowing that the scope and the role of other health professionals, like multidisciplinary kind of thinking is probably a good start. Um, and, and there's a time and place to say to the parent, hey, I want to hear what your son or your daughter has to say right now. Like, is it okay if we just, I'll just talk directly to them or, and, and weighing up some of that stuff. Like I love the first time someone sees a pediatric patient, there's this moment where it's like, Hey, you need to talk to the child, like stop talking to the parent. Um, it's similar to when you have a non-English speaking patient and they're, and the, the junior clinicians just talking to the translator. It's like, no, no, talk to the patient. Like, uh, and, and there's that, yeah, there's this real temptation of going, well, I, I can communicate with that person in the room. So that's what I will do. Um, when I don't think that's the most helpful or validating thing. Like imagine going into an appointment and the professional's just talking to someone else in the room. Like, it's terrible. Um, and so, yeah, one tip would be talk to the child. Um, and then if they keep deferring onto the parent, maybe adjust, but I'd try and persist and, and empower them as much as they can. Like they're the expert. They know their experience um, even better. And sometimes the a common thing is the parent says, look, 
I know my child inside and out. Like I know everything about their experience. Um, it's like, yeah, you probably almost do, right? Like very close to 100%, but there'll be little bits and pieces where they might be able to identify stuff or they might it might be useful for them to try and articulate what they're going through. Like, And this is where for me, the things like the kids' books are great. They can give a vocabulary. It can empower the person in the room who has the least power. You can give them some agency and some, some control over it rather than when they say, like the mom's like, oh, what's wrong? And then say, I don't know. What they might be thinking is, I don't know how to express this. It's really complicated or it's really complex. Um, but then the interpretation of everyone in the room, if they're not working with pediatrics often, you can't blame them. They, they might just be like, oh, the kid doesn't know what they're, what they're going through. Like, we'll just sort it out for them. Um, and this happens in when you see someone, an adult come in with their spouse. Sometimes the spouse is the one who's doing all the talking. And, and, and yeah, so hopefully you can people can draw parallels here. Um, but yeah, so patient-centered, family-centered care, like it's a complicated interaction um, and it's quite complex as well. Like there's a lot of dynamics that are going to influence behaviors. Um, a classic scenario is when there's, when there's two influencers in the room, like two parents or a parent and a sibling, and one of them's like clearly in favor of exercise and bending, for instance, and the other one's saying, be careful, your spine can only bend a certain number of times in your life or whatever it is. And, and having that mixed message is worse probably than just having one consistently bad or good message. Because um, like, how do you navigate that as a 12-year-old, right? Like, uh, yeah. So, but if that other parent wasn't in the room, it could even be worse, right? Because then they're going home thinking that they've improved and then they get home and get told they can't tie up their shoelaces, they need Velcro shoes um, or whatever it is. Like you see this constantly over and over and over. Um, and I like to try and apply those extreme, the learnings from the more extreme cases and, and think how can we that apply as a nuance in every interaction potentially? Like how could it be, how could it give me the ability to be 1% better today or tomorrow or something like that? And if we keep having that, that lifelong learning in mind, it, it's going to be a more rewarding uh, job for us, but also I think we're going to help people more. Mm. There's so much within that. I love that. It's a, when a, a consult with a, a kid with pain becomes like a, almost a group consult or a, or a two-on-one or we're probably dealing more with yeah. the, the parents' worries and concerns and the kid doesn't really want to be there. They, they think they're fine. Um, and they actually, turns out they're, they're, they're okay. The, the parent just wanted to check. So all these kind of nuances with the relationship-centered approach of, of acknowledging the influence that the that parents have and the role that they play in shaping the the perceptions and the experience of of pain, um, and, and I, I love the the very useful bits of information of of looking at like looking at the the person experiencing you know first person um, experiencing pain um, and and talking to them directly and trying to communicate and, and encouraging and empowering them and maybe they just don't have the language. And this is where things like your books and and useful kind of frameworks that we can provide can be so useful and beneficial because that I don't know might be interpreted by the clinician as oh that's all right I know I know exactly what to tell you uh, instead it's like I don't know how to say it or I'm feeling a bit yeah. anxious I'm unsure why are you asking all these questions I'm a bit overwhelmed um, that's what the I don't know actually means so there's a lot of yeah. useful tips there and even if we can extend that communication perhaps uh, before or after consult or at least having that time one-on-one -on -one where indicated um with both the, the the child and the and the parent so they can voice concerns that they might not feel safe enough to express within uh, a yeah. group scenario have i touched on those yeah. main and things some... there was a lot there so yeah. <laughs> no yeah I, I totally agree i i think even at a clinical level sometimes we get so caught up in the jargon of a research paper or whatever it is and it's like but we need to really clearly think about how to how this is going to influence me today like i think really trying to drill down of like what can i change in my clinical behavior and if you're constantly changing and adapting i think that is a helpful thing because otherwise in like it's like when you meet uh, clinicians who are just retired or something like that, and they grew up like you've got a brace and hold your breath when you lift things, and and you're hearing these things, you're like, wow, like I didn't know there were people still advocating for these non-evidence-based strategies or whatever it is. 
Um, but it's like we could quickly, anyone could quickly become non-evidence-based, whatever that looks like. But um, but I think having that humility of going, I'm going to sit under underneath whatever the evidence kind of shows up is a good starting point. Um, but yeah, then you need to be able to read and, and clinically apply it. And so again, this is where having yeah frequent courses and mentoring and podcasts and stuff like that, I think can be a nice way of uh, sustainably feeling uh, ethically okay that you're providing really good care and you're not, I don't know, whatever, like there's lots of um, temptations that private clinicians can face because there's, we've got to run a business, uh, um, but we also want to give the best available healthcare and those tensions are not mutually exclusive. Like there is a barrier and a, and a tension there. Um, and, and yeah, like even just if we keep going with the power dynamic thing, if your boss has a lot of power over you as your clinical job, like that's a hard thing to navigate. And, and if you read something and that's the opposite to what you're currently doing, how do you create a culture or develop a culture um, where change is kind of possible? And for me, I think what's important for, particularly for like new grads who are coming out and going, where do I start? Like if I was going to start a business, how would I want to set it up? It's some of those cultural things of like lifelong learning and, and being willing to be wrong regularly that I would admire most in a boss. Like if I went and started working with someone and they just said like, look, it's my way or the highway, I'd pretty quickly leave that highway. Oh, I get on the highway, not your way. Uh, uh, yeah, there's that real, real challenge, I think, of going, how do we, it's just like, how do we comfortably sit in the discomfort? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and acknowledge the discomfort and think conversations such as these uh, and you, you role model it yourself as a researcher. You mentioned uncertainty and I think we can hold uh, yeah. researchers up on a pedestal as we can with, you know, senior experienced clinicians, educators, uh, mentors uh, and people who uh, appear as authority figures. And I think that that concept of power is is, is everywhere in our clinical interactions um, and in particular as well with with kids as well as uh, as adults, we're talking to them. We're generally uh, in a, in bigger bodies and we can be imposing uh, without even acknowledging that we're imposing even just our, our presence yeah. um, as a medical authority figure. Um, I think that's important to acknowledge those all those power uh, differentials and and yeah. Hey, can I can I just dare whoever's listening to this right now? If if you haven't taken home anything that you want to do right now today. I dare you when you're setting goals with the next patient, go and sit next to them as you set the goals. Like just change the physical setup of the room and see what happens. See if it's any different. Anyway, just quick dare for, I, I love that idea of being challenged to try something new. So um, if people want to challenge me to do something new, I'm very open. And I think um, it's a, it creates a cool culture of going, hey, I'm going to try this differently. Like, And I think there's something about coming alongside a patient that changes the dynamic rather than sitting and you've got a big desk between you or the plinth between you or whatever it is sitting and alongside them and go, Hey, let's draw up a plan together. Let's see how, like, where do you want to start? And, and letting them drive the conversation, use motivational interviewing principles. Like all of that stuff is so much more helpful than pushing on, I don't know, the L4 right facet joint rather than L3 or whatever. Like this specificity stuff doesn't have a whole lot of evidence behind it. Um, and even like three sets of 10 versus three sets of 11, like, does it really matter? Like some of that stuff is really interesting to think about. Whereas if you truly validate and listen to someone that could change their whole life. And and I, I get really excited about, uh, it's like putting the right amount of weight on all these contributing factors. And that percentage, like sometimes, I don't know, let's use fear as an example. Sometimes fear might be 1% of the picture or close to zero. And then other times fear is like 99% of that picture. And so um, tools like the, the copy questionnaire can be really helpful of going, how big of a deal is someone's knowledge and beliefs in this scenario and the parents and whoever else is around? Like, let's just put it all on the table and and I'll lay out my biases as the clinician or whoever I am. Like, and, and I think if everyone puts out, this is what we're thinking, this is where I currently stand and be respectful about it. It allows you to truly set something that's feasible as a treatment plan. Otherwise it becomes that scenario we mentioned earlier where it's like, oh, the patient didn't do what I told them. They're just a classic, like whatever patient and judge them and all of that stuff. Um, That's a bit nasty. Yeah, not a fan of compliance and adherence those terms just have a lot of uh, baggage to them uh, 
um, yeah. and blame can just unintentionally blame the patient. Um, we promise to touch over for parents listening um, where to start and what you would recommend um, if they have uh, kids experiencing pain or even if they wanted to um, share and pass on some, some helpful knowledge and concepts to their own children. Um, and I hear you're a parent yourself. I could have been mistaken. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got three any, little kids. So they're pain science, <laughs> you know, wizards. They know everything now. And, you know, um, so based on your wisdom and also from um, from the research, um, on top of maybe buying some of your books and and sharing some knowledges one thing at a time with, with children, and, and we mentioned uh, being side by side rather than imposing and maybe playing on that curiosity that kids have. Any advice for the parents listening? Yeah. So this was when the kids books were being created, like that was the the thing, like we built this website, zoeandzackspainhacks.com, freely available. We made heaps of videos. And, and the reason I wanted uh, an online thing is that then it can be updated like with the evidence. So the, the book create, contains the story. It's very character focused. It gets the conversation started. And then when you go to the website, like there's a full section for each book, like, Here's some stuff that parents could chat about with their kid and it gives you really nice conversation guides. And, and for teachers, there's lesson plans. And, and for clinicians, there's the evidence behind this learning outcome. Um, and I think, so if I was a parent hearing this and my kid had chronic pain, I think I'd I'd start there and go, well, what's like freely available? Um, and, and I love like when you get emails, say the TED Ed video about the mysterious science of pain, like lots of like millions of people have watched that. And, and you get there's people who misunderstand it and, and and like there's real challenges of building a standalone resource. And so I guess my tip is let these little resources generate ideas, but try not to get offended by them. Like I would, I would try it before feeling angry or something like that. If you feel something, that's probably a good thing, regardless of what the feeling is, go and chat to a trusted health professional at that point. Um, and, and that's probably the starting point. And like, Honestly, the heart the hardest spot I see in that clinical journey for a for a parent, because it's like, oh, do they need more scans? Maybe they've got this tumor, whatever, they have all these fears going on. Where do I start? Having an early conversation with someone you trust, um, who is up to date with the evidence is a great like that's that's the the biggest barrier. Like a lot of people are like, oh, it'll be fine, they'll grow out of it. And, and there's a tension of we don't want to encourage over-servicing. Um, but I think if there's those thoughts in the back of your mind that are quite extreme or really severe thoughts, you need to address them and talk talk them through and get a really good assessment done um, so that then you can move forward. Like once you know that, that your child's safe to move, like how do you do it? And, and what conversations can you have? Um, we've spent years and years trying to come up with some of this stuff, but it's going to be an iterative process. Like I, I really do hope that that website will keep evolving and growing um, and there's fun stuff on there. Like there's, there's things where I've put on like me doing magic tricks for kids and stuff just to illustrate points of like pain is not a thing or, or whatever it is. And I, and I think some of that is like, why can't education about pain be as compelling as the latest, I don't know, bluey episode, whatever it is, um, that the kids are loving. And, and I think it, it can be. And so let's engage with communication experts and let's let's do that really well and um so i've had this really exciting journey this year with the kids books of like working with schools and we're doing research in schools with teachers and um and just like actually seeing how do people respond to this message when there's no like it's not in a clinical setting because i think it's different when you're in a clinical setting people are much more open and, and ready to hear things whereas sometimes if if they have someone say hey read this go and watch this or whatever or watch this for your school project it can be a bit confronting to hear that everything you've thought about pain is kind of in question. Um, yeah. So I guess, where's my tips here? It, it's probably be open and curious and, and know that science isn't like black and white. Like it's not finished yet. We haven't finished science. Like it's going to keep changing. And I think having that in mind is going to, uh, that can improve quality of life. Like I feel very confident of that and, um, but we need to test it. And and so, yeah, fund research would be my other tip. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Love very, that. very biased. Yes, no, not at all. Um, no, totally. <laughs> it, um, loving the the practical tips is uh, a lot of gems and insights that we can take. Uh, I think not even 
just for for kids i think there's concepts in here to make our engagements and our interactions with with all patients experiencing pain uh, a bit more collaborative and interactive and there's lots of gems in this josh um we could talk for uh, as mentioned multiple multiple podcast episodes um but for the listeners who are keen to find out a bit more about you and and perhaps reach out where can we find you yeah, I uh, set up a website during my PhD and I thought it was a waste of time at the, at the time, but I was very strongly encouraged to do it. And now it's uh, it's great. I, I find it really helpful. It's just joshuawpate.com. There's a NASCAR driver with just Josh Pate. So I had to add in my middle initial and the formal one. Um, but yeah, go to that website. That has like contact form and all my research papers, all the media stuff I'm doing. Um, yeah, lots of links and things. And then, yeah, otherwise I, the current big exciting project has been Zoe and Zach's Pain Hacks. So you can Google that, check it out. Um, it's been published with Noi Group, who are the guys who did Explain Pain and lots of amazing resources over the last couple of decades. Um, yeah, I think that that's a great, I, I open people email me. If you just Google my name as well, that will come up. I'm more than happy to chat with people. Mate, amazing. It's uh, exciting times ahead and very keen to see where this journey takes you and takes all of us on this journey, continuously learning and growing. So Josh, really, really appreciate you sharing your insights and yeah, until the next time. Great. Thanks, Daniel.